Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you guys for coming back for another episode of The Places You'll Go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to get involved in the community or take a guess at our weekly photo teasers, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ThePlacesYG. If you have your own amazing stories to tell us, feedback about the show, or ideas for upcoming episodes, feel free to email us at theplacesyg at gmail.com or visit anchor.fm forward slash theplacesyg to leave us a text or voice message. Finally, if you want more people to find out about how awesome this show is, follow us on Spotify and Overcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. This is a Wandering Hippies production. Hey y'all! Hi! It's season finale time! The finale! The finale! We are finishing up season two of The Places You'll Go. It's been a great season. We've had some really good episodes. Our most listened to episode ever is from season two. <gasps> Glacier National Park, 112 listens. Yeah. So whopper! Watch out, guys. We're going to be on CNN next week. I know. I got an email from Apple Podcasts that uh, our podcast is in the top 500 for travel and leisure. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And you obviously, really don't tell me everything. I just got it today. I don't care. So I needed to uh, surprise you on the show, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> But that, I mean, obviously, there's the standards for that category must be fairly low because we don't have that many listeners. So. It's top 500. I know, I know. But still. We're probably 498. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's probably accurate. So we're getting ready to finish up this season. Uh, since I'm starting school, I've already actually started. This has been my first week of school. And it kind of gives me some time to get into the swing of how I'm going to, you know, work classes because it's a little more intensive because they're all eight-week courses. So it's a little different than what I've been used to in the past. I'm, I'm used to having an assignment or two a week. Now I've got like, you know, like four in this class this week alone. So Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the next week, week two, my first project is due. You guys, so you're finding out stuff as I do. <laughs> I hope you feel special because I don't. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> because of that, this is the perfect time to take a little break. We're going to take a couple of weeks off. And that will also give us some time to prepare for the six weeks of Halloween. The they are coming up. Spookiest of seasons. Oh, yeah. Coming up so fast. Again, as I've said before, it is going to be a standalone season separate from seasons two or three. It's just kind of a special thing that we're doing. There, we probably won't have any true crime on it. I'm gearing it more, I'd like to gear it a little more towards the paranormal because it's Halloween, you know? Unless it's a serial killer. Yeah, serial killers exceptions are scary. can be made, yeah. Well, you know, that's the whole, like, shtick of uh, the six weeks of Halloween, you know, six new cities, six terrifying monsters, six chilling hauntings. The terrifying monsters could include serial killers. Yes, or me in the morning. Or Lakin in the morning. Or Stella when she hasn't been fed yet, you know? Stella taking a treat. (laughs) Or me if I haven't been fed yet. (laughs) Actually, that's more accurate than me in the morning, so... Yeah, that's true. So I wanted to finish season two on a high note with a very spooky city. And there may be no city in this country spookier uh, than 
the Peach State's oldest city, Savannah, Georgia. Savannah! That's right. So hopefully this episode will help get you guys in the Halloween mood as we prepare for the six weeks of Halloween. So that's Lakin. And that's Chance. And these are the places you'll go. The places you'll go. So, season finale in Savannah, Georgia, and there's a reason that I've waited so long to do Savannah because I've wanted to do it. I wanted to save it for a special episode, like a season finale. We're going to have to go back. There's way too much shit that has happened in Savannah. We will have to revisit Savannah because there's not enough time in one podcast episode to cover all the shit that has gone on in the city of Savannah. It is known as the Hostess City of the South, and for a very good reason. She is a beautiful and relaxing city and really probably one of the most perfect places to visit in all of the South. And to boot, it's like I said, it's the oldest city in Georgia. So it has some very chilling history to go over and generally just a lot going on in its history from top to bottom. Yeah. The history of the First Nations around Savannah is pretty unique and kind of for a nice change of pace, not quite as tragic as it is in some places. The first peoples that lived in the area that would eventually become Savannah were the Wale people, who were Mississippian peoples, who began living along the Georgia coast around 1150 CE. They had a complex chiefdom society with a governmental hierarchy, and they built mounds uh, like many of the other Mississippian cultures, and were generally just a pretty peaceful people. They would first come in contact with the French in 1562, And then later on, the Spanish to the south, uh, shortly after they, you know, encountered the French. The Wale lands became part of the Spanish mission system and was known as the Wale province of Spanish Florida. Which, now, I'm no expert on the Spanish mission system, but I know that it was not a great thing for most of the people who were under that system. There was a lot of very intensive labor involved. And I didn't get into the details of it on here because it's very complex stuff that I felt like I would need to go back and explain the entire mission systems of Spain to be able to explain it. But basically, like, archaeologists can tell from the femurs of dead Wale people that around this time they became uh, doing a lot more intensive labor. Like, you can just see because their bone structure became more uh, dense and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they also transitioned to a very corn-heavy diet, which was not common for these people. And actually wasn't very good for them. But it was the easiest thing to grow. Um, And now that they were more stationary rather than kind of hunter-gathering like they had been before, uh, corn was the best source of, of nutrients for them. The Wale were decimated by disease, sadly, and the crossfire of the conflict between the Spanish and the English. Mm. The nation would basically dissolve and join in with other refugees from the dissolution of the Spanish missions, and they would become part of the Yamase nation sometime in the late 1600s. 
they formed an alliance with the Scots that were living in colonial South Carolina at the time and conducted raids on the Spanish missions that did remain in the area and basically helped to bring apart bring about the end of the Spanish mission system in uh, Florida. So that was kind of interesting. <clears throat> For sure. The Spanish uh, would eventually destroy the Yamase village that sat near the mouth of the Savannah River. What? Yeah. So unlike them. I know, I know. So unlike any, any settlers. The Europeans never did that. No. Uh, but they had determined that's where the raids on their missions were being conducted from. And the Yamase moved further north into South Carolina, thus basically ending their time around Savannah. Okay. <clears throat> wow. In the early 1700s, some remnants of the Yamase and some members of the Lower Creek Nation who were not happy with the breaking of ties with the English, which had just recently taken place with the First Nations, they established a community along the bluffs overlooking the Savannah River. And as they consisted of Yamase and Creek, they became began calling themselves the Yamacraw. These were the people who lived in the area when General James Oglethorpe arrived with settlers on the, the a ship called the Anne in February of 1733. Oglethorpe was greeted by this amalgamation of peoples known as the Yamakra, and they were led at the time by a chief named Tomachichi, who was a mountain of a man. General Oglethorpe was six foot tall, which was four inches taller than the average European male at the time, but Tomachichi was six eight. Damn! He was an imposing figure as a leader for these people, but he got along really well with the new arrivals to his land. He, re- he welcomed them into the Savannah area. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, it didn't end <clears throat> well, but... Well, no, 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 it didn't, I mean, it didn't necessarily end poorly. I okay, mean, I, that's I good. It, it also probably, his, his uh, acceptance of the newcomers probably was aided by the fact that he was almost 90 at the time when they arrived. Holy shit, so he shrunk. Yeah, so he, he was... He had been like seven foot something. Yeah, probably. He was just this wise old giant of a man. And General Oglethorpe had a lot of respect for him. So much so that he brought Tomochichi, as well as his wife and eldest son, to England to meet the king as they were establishing the colony of Georgia. And Tomochichi was treated as royalty when he arrived in, in England. Good for them. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. That's nice, a great story. Nice change of pace. Yay, good for you guys. <laughs> the Yamakra would eventually intermingle with Europeans and just kind of fade away with the passage of time. Basically just interbreeding and and stuff like that. So it wasn't like they were wiped out intentionally. It was just kind of like a, they were living alongside the Europeans. They they took European wives, European men took, you know, Yamakra wives, things like that. So Cool. They weren't scared. No, no. They were ahead of their time. That's right. I love it. So as a note, the day that James Oglethorpe arrived in the area would actually become um, the day that both the colony of Georgia and the city of Savannah was established, February 13th of 1733, making it 288 years old. And again, as I've said, the oldest city (laughs) in Georgia. Its name actually comes from, obviously, from the Savannah River, whose name is derived from likely a variation of names given uh, to the Shawnee Nation. 
So Savannah is probably some sort of a European bastardization of Shawnee. So it's, it's hard to tell because Shawnee is actually a European name for that nation. Because they Okay. Yeah. During the American Revolution, the British seized Savannah as it was a vital port on the Atlantic Ocean and somewhat home to a lot of loyalists to the crown. And they would defend it during the siege of Savannah where they repelled American, French, and Haitian forces. And they would actually go on to hold Savannah until 1782 when they finally gave it up to the United States. For the remainder of the 1700s and most of the 1800s, Savannah was a vital port city and was absolutely bustling. The cotton industry was huge. Yes. Um, there was a lot of shipbuilding going on there. It was a, it was an important stopping point for many ships as they worked their way up the East Coast. It was just a very busy city and, and very large. When the South seceded from the Union, Savannah would actually become the sixth most sixth sixth most populous city in all of the Confederacy and a valuable asset to the rebels. As such, it became a target for the North and specifically General William Tecumseh Sherman on his march to Savannah, which maybe not everybody knows as much about the Civil War as I do. I find it very fascinating, fascinating. And Sherman's march to the sea was uh, a combination of some of the most terrible crimes that were ever committed during a war. And, uh, Sherman. Oh yeah. Okay. And, um, probably the most vital action taken by an American general during the war because he cut off basically the last port that the deep South had left, cut them off from the rest of the, of, of the Confederacy. But Sherman, like, slashed and burned his way to the sea. They burned every plantation they came across, sowed salt into the ground, uh, I mean, killed every Confederate sympathizer they encountered. It was it was what they called hard war. So it was absolutely brutal on and the way to Kind of dirty, huh? Very, very dirty. Yeah. Now, the goal was to ruin the South. I mean, there's still people that live there. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't give a fuck. They don't care. Yeah. If those people weren't actively fighting against the Confederacy, then they were part of the Confederacy, and Sherman and his troops treated them like enemies. Damn, Sherman needed a Xanax. <laughs> I've got a lot of memes of Sherman okay. on my phone that I feel like you would enjoy, <laughs> but maybe if you maybe especially I, now that I really know Sherman, yeah, and there's so much more to know about the march to the sea. But anyway. Like I said, he burned, pillaged, and ripped his way toward Savannah through Georgia, hoping to strike fear into the hearts of the South, and it worked. Because on December 21st of 1864, the mayor of Savannah negotiated surrender with Sherman, and the following morning, troops marched into Savannah, officially occupying the city for the remainder of the war, which is not all that much longer, because the war ended in April of 1865, so... After that point in time, Savannah's uh, primary industries, they they transitioned to a lot of heavy industry. There was still some cotton trade going on because there were still cotton plantations around the area. There was a lot of rice uh, paddies in that area. It was a very fertile land to have large rice farms. He sowed salt in that too. He probably did. He's like, fuck it. (laughs) Fuck everyone. I hate the South. That's what he said. Yeah, seriously. 
But eventually, heavy industry would kind of fizzle out in Savannah, and it is now the fifth largest city in the state of Georgia with about 147,000 people living there. But it's still very important to the state, but for much different reasons than in the 1800s, because now it's a very important tourist destination. Yeah. Um, It is also home to one of the largest historic districts in the entire country and actually has six separate historic districts throughout the city. So Savannah is now a major tourist draw and is packed with amazing stories, hauntings, and unforgettable things to do and see. So when we finally get to make it to Savannah, where are we going to stay? Well, our first stop is the River Street Inn. Located on East Bay Street, the 200-year-old building was one of the oldest buildings on the block and is now the newest hotel on the block. Nice. The hotel is located in a renovated cotton mill with the comfort of today's amenities but the classic feel of an old hotel. The theme of the architecture is industrial style with exposed brick in the original fireplaces. Select rooms facing the river have floor-to-ceiling windows to give you that beautiful view. Raw iron French balconies are also a plus. As you walk in, you will be greeted by a five-story atrium highlighted by the grand staircase. Nice. And then I have the Marshall House. The Marshall House is located smack dab in the middle of Savannah's historic district and is walking distance to any cute little shops your heart desires. The 45 Bistro is a restaurant located inside the hotel, and it looks amazing, so make sure you check out the Bistro for breakfast. They have an amazing wedding venue, as well as an elopement venue. I've never even heard of that, but good for you. That is very, that's very uh, interesting. We should have eloped. Why didn't we? I don't know. We felt obligated. The third floor has a Civil War era display. The Marshall House was once a hospital for Union soldiers. Nice. This is one of the oldest hotels in Savannah, and they have old artifacts as decorations throughout the entire hotel. The Marshall House is rumored to be haunted, which really just makes sense in this ghostly city. Very cool. Okay, so... Uh, recreationally, Savannah is situated in a very beautiful area of the Deep South, right along the Atlantic coast, in the mouth of the Savannah River, which of course means that there's a lot of recreational opportunities, like ocean recreation, um, river recreation, of course, (laughs) and really the entire area is just packed with unique biomes that are amazing to experience firsthand. So the location that I'm going to be sending to you showcases some of these beautiful ecosystems. And that is the Savannah National Wildlife Refuge. It sets just north of the city along the Savannah River and protects about 31,500 acres in Georgia and South Carolina. It was established in 1927 to protect freshwater marshes, tidal rivers and creeks, and bottomland hardwoods, and in fact about half the refuge is bottomland, composed primarily of cypress, gum, and maple species. I am also bottomland. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Much of the area that is the refuge is only accessible by boat, but you can take a three-hour tour of this area that is considered the lifeblood of the Savannah River. On a boat? Three-hour tour. Yeah, on a boat. The minnow! The minnow! The SS minnow! I'll take one. Same, sign me up. 
While visiting the refuge, you can see freshwater impoundments that were created by dams and dikes in the 1700s to aid in farming rice, but are now used to manage many of the species of migratory waterfowl that pass through the area. You can hike or bike along more than 300-year-old trails that were created to manicure the rice paddies, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. And you can cross over the earthen dikes that are there. Along these travels, you're going to see many species of birds year-round, but wintering birds are the most abundant, abundant from November through April. So, you're, And you're also going to see many types of reptiles like gators all year-round. And even though they're, they're basically the thickest... Um, March through October. They're and then there's also, also the thickest boys. They are the thickest of all the boys. And there's also mammals like bobcats and, and white-tailed deer to see there. And if hiking through gator and bobcat country doesn't seem like an ideal thing to do to you, I understand. I mean, I'm in for it, but I get it. If it's not your thing, Laurel Hill Wildlife Drive meanders through about four miles of marshland and affords the opportunity to see the freshwater pools where migratory birds be chilling and the earthen dikes. So there is an opportunity for every skill level and interest when visiting the National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, currently, the visitor center is closed because of COVID, but when it reopens, it also provides opportunities to learn a lot about the refuge and the environments that it protects because they are very unique environments. Uh, in that area. Surprising. That it's closed for COVID? Yeah. It's part of the federal system, so. Okay. Yeah. Not that surprising. Okay. Georgia and South Carolina didn't get to make the decision, so. Okay. Yeah. Um, they do say on their website, though, don't take an Uber or other ride-sharing thing to the refuge because reception is so poor that you probably won't be able to get a ride back. And because the visitor center's closed, they can't call a cab for you. A so. three-hour <laughs> Yeah, literally. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about the refuge, just visit fws.gov forward slash refuge forward slash Savannah. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the three-hour tours that you can take throughout the refuge, visit outsidesav.com forward slash tour excursions forward slash wildlife refuge excursion. So other than the Wildlife Refuge and the National Monument, what are we going to do to entertain ourselves? <clears throat> okay. So Savannah is a hot spot for shopping. Whether you're looking for latest fashions, home decor, thrifting, or just overall eclectic, you will not be disappointed with any of these unique shops and their amazing storefronts. And there are so many that you're just going to have to find out. Because, oh, listen... I couldn't name them all. They all look really cool. There's so much to do in this city. It's yes, insane. It's, I, I'm like, so the next time we come, I'll have another list of fun things to do. Because, yeah. 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 So take a walk or jog through Forsyth Park. Dating back to the 1840s, this 30-acre park has a little something for everyone. Watch an outdoor concert while inhaling the sweet aromas of flower gardens. Nice. Check out a trolley tour. You have three businesses to choose from, but none of them will disappoint. Check out the historical downtown in style and learn about the rich history of Savannah. Savannah is the most haunted city in the U.S. and they want you to see it for yourself. Easily. You can stay at haunted inns or take ghost tours. There are eight different companies, all with several tours. You could go 
one on you could go on one ghost tour a night if you wanted. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So you can explore the Bonaventure. Yeah, I don't really know. Can I see it? Yeah. Yeah. Bonaventure Cemetery. Yeah. You can drive or walk through the winding roads of this cemetery with tombstones that are hundreds of years old, and the scenery looks amazing. Probably old Spanish moss. Yes. Oh, which that covers Savannah. Yeah. I love Spanish moss. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I'm going to take some home sometime. It won't live up here, but... I'll, you can do I'll it. I'll keep it inside. Okay. I I support you. Don't tell me what I can grow and what I can't grow. I support you. I just can't. I kill succulents, okay? <laughs> the Savannah Underground is a theatrical experience that you'll never forget. Actors play out ghostly stories of Savannah's past. Find out the shocking dark history of the old city in a theater or an immersive trolley ride. So there is another trolley ride. Uh-huh. And then, last but not least, check out the beach. There is three miles of fresh fish... Fresh fish. Fresh fish markets. Oh, I did it. First try. Okay. Nailed no, it. third try. Okay. Tourist shops and historical sites, as well as the gorgeous views of the water. And you can swim. Yeah. 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 That's so Savannah. So that's that's like, that is some things to do in that Savannah. That is a, a mere fraction of the things to do I in wasn't Savannah. trying to overwhelm you guys. Because there's a lot. We might be back. We don't know. Probably. Maybe when we go to Savannah, we'll just do another episode about it. Yeah. So, it's time to, to eat. and <gasps> I love to eat. I know, same. And as, I, as we mentioned time and again, this is a big area with a lot of things. And there are so many places to eat and relax in this beautiful southern city. And many of them are places that you're never going to forget. And I hate so much having to pick just one or two places to recommend for a meal when a city like this has so much to offer. But alas, I don't have time to recommend all 15 places that I'll eat at when I go. (laughs) So, I'll just pick one. And as I mentioned... I love southern cooking, and I love seafood, and I don't know why you would eat anything other than seafood when you're visiting a coastal city other than maybe an allergy. So I'm going to recommend the Savannah Seafood Shack. This is a really unique place in the massive and beautiful Savannah Historic District. So you are just walking distance from the best sites and activities in the city, and the Seafood Shack will not break the bank. The Savannah Seafood Shack has been featured on four different cooking network programs and one travel channel show, including one that was literally about cheap eats. Like, high-quality, cheap food. Cheap eats. Yeah. Yeah. You can afford it, and it's going to be amazing. Oh, sign me up. They have literally every seafood staple that you can imagine, including calamari, shrimp, oyster, lobster, and catfish. Many of their dishes are boiled in their special Cajun seasoning and tossed in red potatoes and corn on the cob. Mm. But the best part of the Seafood Shack is their low country boils. You can order this as a single serving or for a medium party, which I believe it was uh, four to six people, or a large party, which was eight to 15 people. So it comes uh, with shell, shrimp on the shell, corn on the cob, premium beef sausage, and red potatoes. They pour it out on the table in front of you. They top it with garlic butter and their house Cajun seasoning with just the right amount of heat, in their words. 
and everybody just digs in. You can bring all your family and friends to have this classic southern boil meal spread out in front of everybody. Oh. It sounds like an amazing time and a meal that I can't wait to have. Um, and then the best part is you sit outside on historic Broughton Street and just enjoy the beautiful weather and beautiful savannah. So if you would like to learn more about the business or the meals that they have to offer, visit savannahseafoodshack.com. Oh. So that means it's Beerapalooza time. Beerapalooza. Palooza for me. <laughs> Beautiful. I love that one. Thank you. <laughs> so this week we do have to give a special shout out to the benefactor of this week's buzz. The winery providing it. It's not a Savannah winery, but it was we we couldn't switch up our plan for to go for Savannah to go to where this place is. But a close friend of mine, Pam, she just recently visited Niagara Falls and upstate New York, and, and all we of that. dog sat for her. Yes, we did. That was uh, Jack. Yeah, Trapper. you guys remember? Oh my God, that was Trapper. Trapper, Trapper. My <laughs> Joe's dog's name was Jack when he was a kid, and he was a rat terrier too. <laughs> It's okay. I yeah. wanted to call him like Zoomer the entire time we had him, so it's fine. But anyway, uh, while she was up there, she visited a nice little winery in Ripley, New York, and told them about our show, and they sent her some wine for us to give a try, and it's very good. Right now, we are drinking Ladies, Ladies First. First. The other wine that they sent us was called is called uh, Lady. Woman Pleaser. Oh, Woman Pleaser. Yeah, Woman Pleaser. They, these are both sparkling wines. They're very wonderful. This, of course, I think that's their specialty because the name of this winery is Sparkling Ponds Winery. I love a sparkling wine. I oh, love sparkling anything, same, really. Same. So Jennifer Gunther, who is the proprietor, proprietor of this establishment, uh, sent us these wonderful wines from Ripley, New York. And we do want to give her a, a big thank you and a shout out. We'll tag her in the post. Uh, well, we'll tag the winery in, in the Facebook post yeah. for sponsoring our buzz this week, if yes. you will. Yes, thank you. And they're delicious. Yes, they're wonderful. Well, I don't know about Woman Pleaser yet. We haven't got to that one yet, but if it's half as good as Ladies First. I am one yeah. gulp away from Woman Pleaser, okay? <laughs> but anyway, we're going to transition back to actually our brewery recommendation this week. There are several breweries in Savannah, and some are more popular than others, and I usually would prefer to recommend a brewery that's in a historic district or on a riverfront or something like that, but when I ran across this brewery, I knew I had to recommend it. Two Tides Brewing sets in the metro district of Savannah, but it is a really unique building that in and of itself is very old and very cool, and I can't even really describe it. You just have to look at their Facebook page and see the pictures of it to really know what I'm talking about, but that's not the important part. The best part uh, is that this bar is focused on art. Yeah. It's kind of like its own little art museum with a bar, which is kind of why it shot to the top of my list for places to visit in Savannah. Much of the brewery features art from Nashville-based artist and Savannah native Alexandra Hall, who also designs all the art for their beer, and there are various tapestries from other artists all throughout the bar. So it's a really cool thing about this place that they have such a such a focus on art and local art and stuff like that, which is so cool to me. Same. But of course, we're interested in more than just the art. 
They have a wide selection of experimental beers that are always changing. And in truth, they specialize in sours, but there are a bunch of other beers that they make very well, like nearly a dozen IPAs and some great malty beers, as well as some light, refreshing seltzers and ales. But they may be best known for their beer, Slushies, which is why they uh, specialize in, in sours. sours. Yeah, I was like, yes. uh, you know, I'm not against it. Yeah, no, Like a cider? Yeah. Or, yeah, a sour or a I, cider and I a just, I don't think I've found the right sour yet to, I was the same way with IPAs. I used to hate IPA and now I'm obsessed. So I right. just need to find the right sour to get me into it, I think. <laughs> so, like I said, they make beer slushies that can be enjoyed at their amazing location or you can take them to go because they have them in a nice little zip-closed container so you can take it with you to your own favorite spot in Savannah and sip a slushy and enjoy their beer. They take a ton of pride in their slushies, so much so that they throw a festival every year to celebrate them. Every August, they bring in food vendors and DJs to entertain their guests as they rotate through their wide variety of beer-infused slushies in, uh, during different time windows with, like, I think it was about six flavors at a time available, so everyone's sure to get something that they enjoy. I'd be like, give me the suicide. <laughs> I want everything Little in it. All. <laughs> Just kidding. I probably really need to be, like, slowly introduced to these, but I am, I'm, I, I would, love a slushie. I don't know, you might fuck with it in slushy form. Oh my god, absolutely. Yeah. I'm disgusting. <laughs> oh my god. I will I pretty much do anything if it's, like, in a way that I like it. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Give me a soup version of anything. I Fair. am down. Fair. Okay. Give me a slushy version. I would. I want a pickle slushy. I I'd, said I'd it. Try it. I'm not embarrassed. I'd try it. But anyway, this is a really unique place that's at the top of my list. When we go to Savannah, and it should be for you too, in my opinion. So, if you would like to learn a little bit more about them and the brews that they offer, visit twotidesbrewing.com as well as their Instagram account. We'll tag all of that. And with that, we are going to take a quick break and move on into the first story this week. And open another bottle of wine. That's right. Woman pleaser, here I come. (laughs) Okay, so we're back. Hi. And the verdict is in. I think I like woman pleaser a little better than I like uh, ladies first. Ladies first was really good. It was a good, like... Kind of like a sweet red wine. Woman Pleaser is like a rosé. Yeah, I don't know, like a sweet rosé. It's good. I'm in for it. I'm I'm still digging the ladies first. Yeah, you like that one better? Yeah, I mean, I'm also, I've had two sips of this, so. Okay. Maybe I should swig it around in my mouth. You guys are getting us in rare form this week. You're getting us wine drunk, and that's not something we do much. No, I'm probably going to hate myself tomorrow. It's not really our thing, but, well, you don't work tomorrow, so who cares? You're absolutely right. I know. So anyway, I'm going first this week, and my story is not necessarily true crime, but it's, it's more history. And it is a bit of a tragic historic story. So, we'll get into it. This is The Storm That Never Was. In 1893, Savannah was a town, like much of the rest of the South, for all intents and purposes still recovering from the Civil War. 
Rice paddies, cotton plantations, and shallow sea fishing were the dominant industries in the area surrounding Savannah. Because the rest of the soil was covered in salt. Salt! (laughs) The area was deeply divided on racial lines, with black Americans living outside of Savannah and Beaufort, South Carolina, on the barrier islands, and white Americans living closer to the cities or owning the cotton plantations and rice farms that surrounded them. What? I know, shocker. Okay, go on. (laughs) Many black Americans lived in little more than shacks in the swampy bogs and along the sea islands, just barely making it by. They fished the shallow straits for shrimp and crab and worked the rice paddies and the cotton fields, doing what they had to do to survive. By August of 1893, the Atlantic hurricane season had already been very active. Two hurricanes had already made landfall in the United States, including a Category 1 that hit South Carolina in June and a Category 3 that hit New York City on August 15th. Both of those left thousands of people homeless, and to boot, four were actively spinning up in the Atlantic and wreaking havoc throughout the basin by late August of that year. Wow. This would mark the first of only two times in history that four hurricanes were concurrently active in the Atlantic Basin. The other time being 1998, for those who care. (laughs) I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Folks in South Carolina and Georgia were all too familiar with hurricanes, but... Many believed that they'd have plenty of warning when one was coming their way, and that wasn't altogether an inaccurate thought. The Weather Bureau, which we now know as the National Weather Service, had begun working closely with ships that were crossing the Atlantic to track storms and were becoming increasingly better at predicting a storm's path. Additionally, widespread usage of telegraphs and newfangled contraptions called telephones were ensuring that warnings could come to remote areas more quickly than ever. The problem with all that was the people who lived on the barrier islands were poor. Few, if any, had access to the telegraph offices, especially considering many of them were whites only, and even fewer had access to a telephone. To warn these residents would require locals to spread the information by word of mouth. The problem with that was... Many people who did have access to the technology that would provide early warning of the approach of massive hurricanes didn't speak to the black residents of the islands, much less go out of their way to warn them of impending danger. Jesus Christ. That's gross. I'm sick of it here. You know, I I don't like a lot of people, but I would still... I'd still go out of my way to tell people because that's who I am. And that's who we all should be, in truth. Anyway, on August 15th, the same day that the New York City hurricane was making landfall, a tropical storm was observed off the coast of Cape Verde. The storm would not be observed again for another four days, by which time it had strengthened into a hurricane. Just three more days would pass before the storm was once again observed as having a barometric pressure of around 950 millibars, and sustained winds of about 120 miles per hour, which marked it as a Category 3 hurricane by August 22nd. Remind me again what year this is? 
1893. Okay. At this point, residents um, in, around Savannah and Beaufort, South Carolina, were aware of the possibility that a storm might make it to the area. And word had spread to many of the major communities along the coast, but to this point, there was no official word that the hurricane was going to directly impact the area. By August 25th, the powerful storm had begun to turn northwest, directly towards the barrier islands. That morning, water levels began to rise and strong winds were pushing in from the Atlantic. Those who could began to evacuate the islands, anticipating the storm's arrival. Many, however, could not leave and simply hoped that the storm would miss them. Around midnight on August 26th, the Georgia Weather Bureau received a report from Washington that the hurricane had continued to strengthen off the Florida coast and was likely to make landfall in either Georgia or South Carolina. The word was spread to the telegraph office offices, and newspapers in the area that if the residents were to evacuate, now was the time. The thing was, this didn't really matter. The idea that poor people who lived and worked on the barrier islands would have the time to travel all the way to town just to check the weather reports at the telegraph offices or newspaper stations was absolutely absurd. Some rumors did make it out to the islands that strong storms were coming, but urgency was impressed, and the true strength of the storm was never really relayed to anybody on the barrier islands. Even if it had been, it would have required people in these communities to abandon everything they owned in their entire lives for a storm that might not actually hit them. Despite these misgivings, a lot of people were still pretty concerned that they might have to leave for higher ground. But on the morning of August 27th, the high tides and strong winds subsided. People on the islands thought that they were in the clear. Rather than evacuating, they went to Sunday services and continued life as usual. As usual. They assumed that the storm had passed. Then, later in the afternoon, the monster more quickly approached the islands. Winds picked up, and it became clear that the storm was a-coming. Mm. By now, it was far too late to leave. Tens of thousands of people were stranded on the islands and outlying communities and could do little more than batten down the hatches and hope for the best. Now, I know I've already stated it, but I feel it's important to stress that the people who lived in these extremely rural communities were very poor. They didn't have the means to evacuate in many cases, much less build homes that could withstand the power of the storm that was approaching. We simply don't know how strong this hurricane actually was when it made landfall. But it's estimated that wind speeds were in excess of 130 miles per hour, and the barometric pressure was somewhere in the 931 millibar range. Officially, historians state that it was a Category 3 hurricane as it made landfall just outside of Savannah. But if the data that I mentioned before, the wind speed and the barometric pressure, pressure is to be believed, it was more likely a Category 4. Oh, God. The hurricane was preceded by massive storm surge. Modern computer models of the conditions that led up to the storm suggest that most of the heaviest storm surge was around 16 feet, but 
Some areas directly in front of the storm experienced surges of more than 30 feet. Oh my god. Most of the homes on the islands that outlied Savannah and Beaufort, South Carolina, were little more than two feet off the ground. You don't have to be good at math to know what that means. Mm. As storm surge welled across the islands late in the night on the 27th and early in the morning on the 28th, homes were washed off their beams and people bracing for the storm were simply wiped off the earth. The storm continued north towards Beaufort and continued to bring massive surges to the barrier islands, ripping buildings apart with sustained winds over 100 miles per hour. The night was the longest in the lives of many of the residents of the area, and the last for so many more. That's so ugly. I'm so pissed off right now. Like, seriously? It takes zero dollars to be nice. To be a good human. I know. I'm good. I'm a good human to worse people. You know what I mean? To undeserving people. Yeah, I agree. Oh, God. Okay, I'm sorry. No, I'm having um, a meltdown over it's here. Okay. I am it's pissed. Okay. <laughs> I'm so mad. I'm getting it together. Later in the day on the 28th, the storm continued up the coast, causing damage as far north as New Brunswick, Canada. This was a true monster of a storm. As people came out from shelter throughout the evening on the 28th and the morning of the 29th, they were greeted by a veritable hell on earth. Beaufort was leveled. Virtually no buildings were left standing in the city. Savannah was inundated with flood water as the levees had failed to hold back the massive influx of water that was pushed ashore by the storm. But the scene on the barrier islands was so much worse. Areas where small communities had once existed were void of any signs of of habitation. The drainage ditches and channels throughout the peninsulas and islands were stacked with debris from houses and the bodies of those who didn't survive the storm. The thousands who had survived, nearly 20,000, began the slow, painstaking process of evacuating their decimated communities for the safety of Savannah and Beaufort. Black residents of the islands flooded into those two cities looking for fresh water, food, and just a place to stay. In Beaufort, sadly, there was no shelter. There were almost no buildings left standing in the city, and it was having its own struggles with food and fresh water. It couldn't provide some for those who had evacuated the coastal communities. In Savannah, they were struggling with water issues, but on top of that, racial tensions began to run high as homeless black residents of the islands filled the streets searching for solace. Officials of the city began rationing food and water, hoping to make both last as they were scrambling to help the destitute refugees. White residents felt that they were being ignored and that the state was using too much of its resources to help black refugees and not enough to help them, despite the fact that it was the black residents of the outlying communities 
that were disproportionately affected by the storm, and it actually makes sense that they would receive more assistance. I'm gonna fucking elbow these people. I know it happened in the 1800s, but you're fucking gross. Be ashamed of yourselves. I don't care. Agreed. God, there's still people. People in need. I'm pissed. Anyway. These same issues began to crop up in Beaufort, which simply piled on the destruction that was caused by the hurricane. Racially motivated conflicts and brawls arose in the streets and at the ration stations that were set up in the city. At this time, the American Red Cross was just 12 years old, and their resources were already strained by the other storms that had hit the East Coast earlier in the year in Charleston and New York. Because of their incredibly thin resources, it would take the Red Cross more than a month to actually arrive to render aid to the victims of the storm. So these people who just lost everything are starving. They are dehydrated. And they're not humans compared to the rest of the world that they're living in. Yep. And had to live on the streets of Savannah and Beaufort for... Until October 1st. Yeah, for real. Like, what the fuck is wrong with... I'm tired of people. Agreed. The pandemic... Like, listen, I've really learned the good people out there. There aren't many left. There wasn't any to begin with. Are you serious? This is the 1800s. Well, yeah. Like, obviously, we dragged these people away from their families in Africa, stole them in the middle of the night, children, sold them to plantation owners, and then they got freedom, but they weren't free. And then this bullshit happens. Fuck you guys. I'm sorry. I know you're all dead now, but fuck you guys. (laughs) I'm pissed. Be a decent human. (sighs) <sighs> I'm pissed. I This I, is how I don't cry. I understand. Also, antidepressants. <laughs> Sometimes I want to cry and I can't. But that's okay. Sometimes I cry and I don't want to. So that's also okay. <laughs> so, in total, about 30,000 people were homeless. And in the time between the storm and the f- arrival of the Red Cross... Things got so much worse. Oh my god. I don't know how much more I can take of your story. (laughs) I told you it was heavy. (laughs) I didn't know how quite how how heavy because my stories aren't so happy. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, sorry. Go on. So in that month's time frame, a yellow fever epidemic. Oh god damn it. (laughs) I'm sick of it here! (laughs) So sorry. Let me me pick my vitamins up off the floor. (laughs) Anyway, let's just keep talking about how the earth punched black people all all their lives. It wasn't just black people with the yellow fever thing. Uh, Yeah, I know. To be fair. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> in that month's time frame, a yellow fever epidemic ravaged the area as stagnant water 
that had been dumped by the storm pooled around and billions of mosquitoes began to breed and spread illness across the already struggling people of Savannah and Beaufort. Both cities were simply not equipped to handle the number of extra people that were now living in the areas, and illness was rampant. Other than yellow fever, food and waterborne illness was spreading rapidly in the crowded streets and refugee camps. So, to backtrack a little, we'll go to immediately following the storm. This was when the gruesome task of counting and collecting the dead began. And this was no small task. County coroners and medics deputized multiple hundreds of people to help start the counts. Somewhere around 25,000 people lived on the islands off the Georgia and South Carolina coasts. This is just an estimate. Because at this time, it was not uncommon, uncommon for people to give birth at home and never appear on any records. The question truly becomes, how many people actually lived there? The best estimates say 25,000, but some of the higher ends say 35,000. Many buildings were completely erased, and likely the residents with them. Thousands of bodies lined the intercoastal waterways, rice paddies, and drainage ditches. Oh, God. One account from a newspaper said that finding a single body barely caused the batting of an eye. It took finding clumps of a dozen or more entire families to stir any emotion in those searching. Officials and locals began loading bodies onto carts and taking them to mass graves. In many cases, entire families were destroyed, leaving nobody to mourn for them or to claim their bodies. And often the dead were simply tossed into ditches and covered in sand. Worse yet, white officials didn't really concern themselves with taking records of the dead black farmers. Mm -hmm. To be fair, in some cases they did, but many times the records were poor, if taken down at all. The islands stank of death for months Decomposing bodies were found throughout rural areas, in trees and in ditches where nobody had looked yet. Mm. At the end of in the counts... trees! I wouldn't even think of that. Yeah. I'm from Iowa. Yeah. You know? At the end of the official counts, 1,200 people were tallied as dead. But modern estimates place that much, much higher. Many of the modern estimates say that around 2,000 people could have been counted as dead, making the Sea Islands Hurricane of 1893 the sixth most deadly hurricane in U.S. history, worse than Hurricane Katrina, and tied with the hurricane that would hit Charleston, South Carolina on October 15th of that same year. Mm. Realistically, given the number of people who never showed up on census records again, or those that were reported missing, or those that simply weren't counted by officials, the death toll may be almost double that, closer to 4,000, which would make the Sea Islands hurricane the second deadliest in U.S. history. The truth is, we just don't know how many people died. But what we do know 
is that this storm forever changed Savannah and Beaufort. Phosphate mining had been a major industry in Beaufort, and that came to a complete end after this hurricane. The rice paddies of Georgia were flooded with seawater, bringing that industry to a screeching halt. Tens of thousands of poor farmers, who now had no way to earn money in Savannah, left for the north. Yeah, I don't fucking blame them! But the worst part about this, one of the most destructive and deadly storms in our nation's history, was that it just doesn't appear in textbooks. In Georgia and in South Carolina, only passing mentions are made. Some textbooks don't include it at, at all. These are textbooks that children learned from. And they don't even discuss this storm, one of the deadliest in history. One book that's billed as a definitive history of South Carolina spends multiple pages on an earthquake in Charleston that killed just 110 people and barely mentions the 1893 Sea Islands hurricane. Gross. The storm was wiped from history because most of the victims were black. They were freed slaves. The work that they did on those islands meant nothing to Georgia or South Carolina. They were insignificant in comparison to those who would die in the October 15th hurricane in Charleston. Despite the unfathomable loss of life and destruction caused by the Sea Islands hurricane of 1893, despite the permanent effect that it had on the region, she is still the storm that never was. Fucking rip my heart out, Chance. I chugged my wine. I felt like it was an important story to tell, you know? It is important. Fuck. I try not to cuss. <laughs> as much as Chance. I don't, I mean, I don't try not to. No, I know. <laughs> um, I'm devastated. I'm pissed. I'm about to flip the whole South. Flip it. <laughs> Just like a beer pong table when I've lost, <laughs> which doesn't happen very often, <laughs> but I'll flip a goddamn table over this. <laughs> I'm so pissed. What the fuck? Like, the I know thing. a lot of people died, and I know a lot of white people died. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that, but, the, but like... But the overwhelming majority, and some of the estimates place it, and it, at 90% of the deaths were of black people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they couldn't take, white people couldn't take the time to tell people that that weren't people to them. Yeah. And they weren't welcome in the towns. So they couldn't go into town to just check and check the weather report. I mean, they, they could. They could. It wasn't illegal for them to be there. But they, they I mean, why would I, I wouldn't want to go into a town where everybody hated me and... I might get beat to death in a back alley just for being in town. Being alive? Yeah. For existing? Yeah. God damn, I'm pissed. Fuck. Now, now to be fair, there some of the descendants of the people who lived on the barrier islands actually still live there. And still do some farming on those islands. Good, I'm glad. But it's obviously, it's not what it was. Because... Despite the fact that Georgia and South Carolina didn't see it as important to the states, the that rice farming industry was pretty large. They did a lot of fucking rice farming. 
And like that was before the time where it was really feasible for us to export it anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it was easy to export rice, but like we didn't have the Panama Canal yet. You yeah, know? right. So it wasn't like we weren't exporting it to the to Southeast Asia and stuff like right, that. So right. so rice farming was big in this area, but it wasn't. There wasn't a ton of demand for rice farming in the U.S. But like, if that had survived, Savannah might Savannah and Beaufort, like this area, might be a very different area. It might be like the one of the biggest rice farming areas in the world. But because we allowed thousands of people to die in this hurricane and then just made them live on the streets afterwards to the point where they didn't even want to stay in the area. Now rice farming's nothing. I you mean, know, hats off to the people that wanted to stay in the area and that could. Like that hats that, off to the ones that were willing to. Yeah, like, oh, I'm distraught. I'm in a terrible mood now. I'm sorry. I have to pee. Okay, we're going to take a minute. We're going to collect ourselves. I'm going to go pee. And Lakin's got some hauntings for us because there's a shit ton in, in Savannah. And I, listen, some people let their anger out in punches. I let my anger out in pee. Okay? <laughs> okay Bye. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> All right, we've got it together. I'm not. I'm so pissed. I'm in a terrible mood now. (laughs) I have to go watch some women killers before I can get it back. But first, I'm going to tell you a story. A couple stories. A few stories. Oh, also, I do want to make a quick note that Sparkling Ponds Winery, the sponsor of this week's buzz, is also an Airbnb. I forgot to mention that earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they Stay are an Air- there. Yeah, they're an Airbnb and a winery, so definitely uh, check them out. Sparklingpondswinery.com. Carry on, ma'am. Okay, I'm gonna pretend like I'm not absolutely pissed off at the world right now. <laughs> what haunts the streets of Savannah? Savannah, unana. <laughs> Today, the bustling historical district has a refreshing light feel to it. With hundreds of little shops found everywhere, gorgeous parks with children playing, people laughing, it's hard to see Savannah as anything but charming. That is, until you look into Savannah's long, dark history. When there's so much of it. Secret tunnels kept underneath the streets, mass graves found buried in the soil of their parks, and the aberrant slave trade that was popular right on the shores of Savannah. So come with me as we explore the darker side of Savannah. Ooh, Which, sign me up. How could we get darker than Chance's story? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but I didn't know then when I wrote this, so That's, here we yeah, go. She didn't know how dark it was. Now I just want to do a backflip off a bridge and be like, this is for all the dead people on the barrier islands. (laughs) But alas, I'm alive still, and here is my story. Our first stop on our tour is the Sorrel Weed House. If you think you have heard of this house, you probably have. This house has been featured on Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, and even made a cameo in Forrest Gump. Really? 
that's where the feather at the beginning, the feather's like floating down. Yeah. Really? That was in Savannah, huh? In Sorrel Weed House. That's really cool. Yeah. That's my favorite movie of all time, to anybody who doesn't know. His dad. That's his dad's favorite movie of all time as my well? My dad's watched it a million times. I've watched it a million times. I'll watch it a million more because it's the best movie that was ever made. And I'll do it again. I'll fucking do it again. So, you can find this house on Madison Square. And Madison Square is where the Siege of Savannah took place during the Revolutionary War. Yes. The battle was bloody, leaving hundreds of revolutionary soldiers dead or ill. Trenches were dug for the bodies, a mass grave for the soldiers that fought for this country. If you were found unconscious, you would most likely get thrown in one of these trenches. Oh, shit. So there were a lot of people buried alive. It was believed that several people were buried alive. Oh, shit. And in some of the accounts that I read, they would hear people, like, gasping for air as they drug them to the trenches. Like, And, of course, these were the British soldiers burying them. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't give a fuck. These were just guys that couldn't fight again. Yeah. They, and I mean, some of them maybe could have lived if they had seen any medical help. Right, right. But this is also like 1700, so a good chance of living isn't really. Yeah. Statistically, they probably wouldn't have lived, but I mean, they were alive when they were (laughs) thrown in the trench. And they were buried alive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fifty years later, the city started to expand, and the bodies were never retrieved. War heroes buried in unmarked graves would never get a proper burial. And in the 1870s, the Sorrel Weed House was erected right on top oh. of all of On these. the mass grave, huh? Yes. The original owner, Francis Sorrel, was the epitome of... Of class. Oh, okay. When his young bride, Lucinda Moxley, passes away, his friends... No. I'm drunk and I can't read. When his young bride, Lucinda Moxley, passes away, he finds solace in her younger sister, Matilda. Literally. (laughs) Winks all over. Okay. (laughs) Awkward wink at me. Yeah. Everyone said that the two seemed very in love. But someone else in the house may have told a different story. Molly, a slave girl, was held much higher than the rest of her peers. She had her own room inside the house, while the rest of the slaves slept in the dingy slave quarters. Oh. That may have been because Frances was having an affair with her. Checks out. She had her own room so the two could meet privately. That is until one day when Matilda walked in on them. That night, Matilda fell victim to suicide by jumping from a second floor balcony. The next morning, Molly was found hanging in her private room. She knew that as a slave, she had no freedom and no rights. Matilda's suicide would probably have been pinned on her, and ultimately the affair too. So she decided 
to take matters into her own hands. Instead of being tortured, she took her own life. Oh. Yeah, I see. I, Sad. I, I did not go lighter. I know. I'm hey, we're hey, we're prepping for the six weeks of Halloween. The six weeks of Halloween are not going to be light stories. Yeah. So this is a good prep for it. These are some some dark shit going on in Savannah. It's yeah. A, it's an amazing city, but it has a dark past. To it. Absolutely. Still today, you can see the shadows of Molly and Matilda. Sometimes being able to catch a glimpse of one of them in a mirror. One or both of them. Like, you can see one or the other. Mm-hmm. Molly is said to haunt the slave quarters. Men report the feeling of being watched. Some feel sick or drowsy. Others say that they feel they are being strangled. Other people claim to hear a social gathering in living in the living room. No. Other people claim to hear a social gathering in the living room. When they went to take a look, the sounds suddenly stopped. And there was no one in the living room. Oh. Some say that there is a dark energy about the house. Sounds of warfare. No. Some say there is a dark energy about the house. Sounds of warfare can be heard on quiet nights. And well... Why wouldn't there be dark energy there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a battlefield. Yeah. And then on top of and that, a fucking mass grave. And then on top of that, the, we're gonna have two shit. suicides and another death. Yeah, for sure. But on our next stop, we're gonna s- stroll through Factors Walk. Nestled in between Bay Street and River Street was the home of Original Cotton Exchange. The prices of cotton worldwide were determined right here. Oh, in Savannah. Yeah. Huh. Yes. Today, thousands of people walk through the area to visit the restaurants, pubs, antiques, and specialty shops that look over the industrial buildings. This was a hot spot for slave trade. Slaves would be guided in through tunnels or brought ashore on boats, sold like cattle. People say that late at night you can see the shadows of slaves hunched over and tired from being worked to the bone, often hearing moans from what used to be the tunnels. The ghost tour guides will tell you that these are the least shy ghosts in Savannah. It is no surprise that almost everyone sees a tall shadow person just beyond their line of sight. An antique shop often has a lady in a blue dress visit their store, appearing to shoppers and workers. Along with the woman in blue, footsteps can be heard. Doorknips. Doorknips. Doorknobs will twist on their own, and sometimes small breakable objects will be found smashed into a million pieces. Oh. And for our last stop, we have the Moon River Brewing Company. This is another famous stop for the ghost hunting crews. Like, and before, like before, ghost adventures, ghost hunters, everyone's been there. I almost did that as my recommendation. I wondered if you did. But I saw, like, how many hauntings it had, and I knew that I wasn't going to do a haunting story. So I thought, I was like, I'll just kind of... 
I'll leave that just in case, like, he brings it up. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Same. The building was built in 1821 as an elegant gathering spot for the social elite. It also served as a hospital where many lost their lives to yellow fever. Some of the ghosts here are friendly or just residual energy left from fond memories or just memories. Oh. You can often hear children running and laughing in the halls. Many murders took place, and with a violent past comes violent hauntings. Toby is the name the staff gave the ghost in the basement. He is known to brush up against people that play pool and get frustrated and push them. People witness sudden cold spots, bottles falling or being thrown, and the feeling of being touched by someone who isn't there. All of these reports are made from patrons and staff who say that the basement is the height of the activity in Moon River Brewing Company. But despite the fact of that being one of the most like active areas, I could not get any more information on it. Huh. So, be that as it may. Yeah. On the first floor, you can see bottles being thrown as well. Dr. Minus shot and killed a man in the 1800s, and many believe that he is the reason for some of the violent attacks like grabbing, hitting, and pushing people. Oh. Several women have mentioned the bitter cold feeling they get in the women's restroom, even on the hottest summer days. Some women have even been locked in their stalls by an unknown source. Hmm. The top two floors are known for their most violent encounters. But not all are violent, though. The second floor is where you can hear children laughing, talking, and crying. This was the children's yellow fever floor. Oh, okay. Mrs. Johnson can also be found on this floor. Or the, wa- the woman in white. She can be seen on the third floor as a full-body apparition. But no oh. one's ever felt any, like... Nothing negative to it. Nothing negative to it. She's just there. <coughs> She's probably just a mom. Yeah. You know. But in the 1990s, construction was being done on the third floor. The wife of the foreman of the construction crew working on the building was touring the building when she was pushed down a staircase on top of the third floor to the second floor. Immediately, the foreman put a stop to the construction and several of his workers ran out screaming. Oh, shit. This is where the darkest of the energy that can be found is on the third floor. Oh. There are very few reports besides the woman who was attacked on the stairs. Many people say that they just feel ill exhausted or extreme emotions although the third floor lacks ghostly apparitions it is packed full of feelings of emptiness and despair the third floor was the yellow fever unit for adults okay that makes sense yeah and i could sit here and go on for hours about the dark history of savannah and the ghosts who are doomed to repeat it over and over again But I think I'll wait till next time we visit Savannah. Oh, there's so much more. 
On your way out of your hotel room, say a prayer or protection ritual. Maybe bring a cross or a black tourmaline stone. Or you might just end up taking a ghostly visitor home with you. Oh. There are some good stories in Savannah, I'll tell you what. Savannah is lit, you guys. Savannah is so lit with ghost stories. But they were great stories. And there are so many hauntings in Savannah. I almost included Savannah in the six weeks of Halloween. In fact, I thought he did. Yeah, she thought. I was like, no. We can't do Savannah this week because you you put it in the six weeks of Halloween. And I was like, no, I no, I didn't. I decided not to. I was like, no, you're wrong. And he's like, let me look at my itinerary. And I was like, oh shit, you're right. (laughs) Man, I can't wait to go to Savannah. It's been a city that I've always wanted to visit, and there's a lot of reasons that I want to visit. Not least of which is the hauntings that are everywhere. Oh, I have to go. I mean, No, I didn't even know I needed to go. It might be one of the best Halloween visits to make in the country. Yeah. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's New New Orleans is is a great place to visit in Halloween. Chattanooga is a good one. Uh, Everybody wants to go to Salem on Halloween. I'm telling you, Salem should be, or not Salem, Savannah should be in your top five. It's in mine now. Yeah, it's so spooky, <clears throat> such a haunted place. I can't wait to go visit Savannah. I want to take, like, a fucking Halloween trip somewhere. You know? Yeah, I want to take, like, a full month with a trailer. Oh, dude, same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like I'm ready to, RV. I'm, I'm ready to just give up, give up our possessions, and we'll just buy mom's mom's camper. Don't, it's perfect. Don't threaten me <laughs> with being homeless because I'm here for it. Okay, like I'm tired of it. I hate my. We'll job. see if she'll take everything we've got for it, <laughs> and the truck because we don't have any way to pull it because it's a fifth wheel. <laughs> You don't think the Volkswagen could do it? <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just slap a fifth wheel plate on top of the Volkswagen. We're good to go. We'll just throw an extra motor. You're right. She'll be okay. I think she can handle it. She's a fucking soldier. I think I think the dub can handle it. It's just I don't think that the uh, the glass moonroof on the dub can handle it. What? A fifth wheel plate? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't anyway. know. <laughs> Chance. I drink a bottle of wine to myself. Anyway, Help me. Anyway, y'all. You don't have to get far off an interstate to go visit Savannah. Because it's it's right along the coast. You just exit the freeway and you're going to hit that bad boy. We drove right past it on the way to Tampa one time from uh, rural South Carolina. And the drive was beautiful. So I know the city's going to be. And yeah. when you're there, you are going to meet some truly amazing people. You are probably going to have to take a little boat ride to the Barrier Islands. That's right. You are almost certainly going to see some ghosts. And you're probably going to drink some really good beer. 
You're going to have great southern food. And hopefully, these are the places you'll go.